0: Welcome to the new channel. Our passion transforms a community that sees all things new. I'm Alpha Sanford and I'm streaming live from Boston, Massachusetts. Good morning, good evening. Magandang umaga, mabuhay to all of you. Welcome to Once a Teacher, Always a Teacher on the new channel. <laughs> this wonderful morning and evening to parts of Asia, especially in the Philippines. Did you miss me? Na miss ba ako? Right? It's been a few weeks since season one wrap up, and now we are on to season two. And today is the premiere episode of season two. And for this season, we're all gonna be talking about equity, inclusion, diversity, access and opportunity. And for today's guest, you will learn a lot about our MLs or the multilingual learners. Or here in Massachusetts, we call them ELs. It stands for English Language Learners. All right. We are going to have Dr. Sergio Paez. But before we bring him in, I am going to just quickly introduce who our distinguished guest is all right are y'all ready let me introduce to you Dr Sergio Paez so Dr Sergio Paez worked for the Holyoke Public Schools where he served as the superintendent from 2013 to 2015. prior to his tenure he had a senior position in the Worcester public school system as the manager for English language learners and supplemental support services from 2007 to 2013. He also began his education and career as an elementary school teacher and continued on as an assistant principal and a central office administrator. He teaches at the university level, preparing teachers and future education leaders, all right? Dr. Paez has a master's degree in education from Harvard University and a doctoral degree in school administration from Boston College. He consults with the government of Colombia and Spain on educational issues and actively collaborates with the international program at Harvard University. He has published books, journals related to quality of education, the environment, and policy related to the improving improvement of quality of education his professional work has been centered on turnaround work in urban education specifically with disenfranchised populations ensuring that every student with the right resources and conditions is able to learn he has also researched on social issues and the impact of these issues on education he has dedicated his professional work to urban education and to finding ways to diminish the academic gaps that historically exist among different groups of students in the country. So without further ado, let me bring in Dr. Sergio Paez. Dr. Paez, are you here?
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you. So um, your work around MLs is really outstanding. And uh, uh, let's dig a little bit deeper in terms of the growing numbers of students of multilingual learners uh, or else here in Massachusetts and over in Rhode Island, you call them uh, MLs, right? So yeah, yeah, can you tell us a, bit, a little bit more um, about these students and what is the current makeup of MLs in Rhode Island and also in the entire US.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity. And 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 absolutely, I think that the challenge we have, and my role now as a director of equity, empowerment, and excellence for multilingual learners in Central Falls is a perfect job for what I've dedicated my life to do, which is empowering these kids to 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 grasp the, the language and get the content that they need to master their their the desires to be. Uh, all they can be with the American dream. As an immigrant myself, that's a very uh, powerful uh, perspective for me. But in the United States, we have about uh, 4.9 million multilingual learners. So it's, a, it's a big number. It's about 8% of the total population of, of, of students in the United mm-hmm. States, about 50 million total students, about um, 8.1 to 9.6 uh, is in the United States. So it's a large number, about 5 million students are... Um, multilingual learners. Now, in Rhode Island, we have about mm-hmm. 23,000 of them. Uh, total population is 124,000 students and about 23,000 are multilingual learners. That's equal to 16% of the wow. population. Now, in Massachusetts, to make the connection, uh, and I was very curious about this, this statistic, you increased to 90,000 multilingual learners in Massachusetts back in 2002 it was about 50,000. So in Massachusetts, we almost doubled the number of multilingual learners. So it's it's a huge challenge for every district. And and we have not only the academic needs of this community, but everything around their lives. So they come from other countries and other places, and they ended up here like a country of immigrants that we are uh, to be in this great country. So having the right set of tools, the right expertise, the right program development, the right everything, is super essential for them and i think having the opportunity to talk about what equity is for these kids and how the data is not really showing us equity is Mm -hmm. is a big challenge for us because i want to take the perspective of leadership we create the conditions we create the conditions for this to be happening so as as a former superintendent as a director every decision that we make correlates to the outcomes that we have for our multilingual learners so thank you for the opportunity and i think i'll I'll be happy to 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 engage in this conversation appreciate it
0: Great. yeah you mentioned a lot of like great things right there in just that quick um you know explanation of where we are with the mls i heard about leadership I heard about equity and all of that, right? So as a former superintendent, um, actually referencing uh, one of your articles that you wrote for Providence Journal, and I love the line when where you said, we continually use suburban solutions to urban education. So tell us more in terms of that relative to the supports that we provide or the solutions that we provide to MLs and L students.
1: That's a great point. I'm glad that you read the article, but it's so typical and I I train teachers and my first question to teachers is, where do you wanna be? Do you wanna be a teacher in a suburban district or a teacher in an urban district? Very different. They both have a significant characteristic that makes someone either be the right fit or no. So what happened historically? We have teachers, and the majority of our programs historically have been developed around suburban education. Mm -hmm. In the last 10 years, we've been seeing more and more urban tracks, urban education tracks, because the field is trying to fix that. But when you be looking at the 20, 30 years, in the last 20, 30 years, we have educators who have been ill-prepared, in a sense, to be a suburban educator. And when you start thinking about what you need, is someone who has experience and knowledge of the community that you'll be servicing. African-Americans, Hispanics, students with low socioeconomic status, refugees, students who are coming from other places and need to be part of that urban environment with all the set of social issues that affect their lives and their conditions to learn. So when, when just, just to give an example, and I'm, I'm going to use a little bit of statistics here just to make it very obvious why ESL instruction and urban and suburban solutions are uh, important the majority of the, the majority of, of materials that we use for curriculum have been normed and developed for english speakers everything has been developed for english speakers and then they have something for english language learners or multilingual learners and it's an add-on but the whole bulk of these programs and it's multi-million dollar companies i mean they they sell a lot of materials curriculum and and we all all have the common core as a reference But just to give you a reference, when we have a student between the ages or the months of 12 to 18 months, they need to know about 20 words. Mm -hmm. words. When they have four years of age, about 1,500 to 1,600 words. Then when you are five years old, you need to have about 2,100 to 2,200 words. Mm -hmm. By the, the time you are 12 years old. You need to know at least some receptive vocabulary for for about fifty thousand words. Mm -hmm. This is for English speakers. So imagine someone coming in at twelve, in fifth grade, sixth grade, with no English vocabulary, just from the vocabulary perspective. And then you're trying to use the same curriculum materials, the same everything, and then we're trying to connect with Equitable. Mm -hmm. Is that equitable for someone who just came in with no language skills into the country. They come with a tremendous amount of wealth of information, culture and language, but it's in the native language. So how do you match what you have in your systems to our systems with what you need to provide to support these kids to be able to have access to equal academic opportunities? So that's for me, the essential part of urban and suburban. If you are treating everybody equally, everybody's doing equality. And I'm going to mm-hmm. cite Lao versus Nichols, a Supreme Court case in which it says, Chinese immigrant group in San Francisco, who argue that having the same materials, the same books, the same teachers, the same buses, the same everything, is equality, but it's not equ- equity. Mm-hmm. It is to provide what every child needs. And that's so important because when we start looking at what I just mentioned about words, just words, no comprehension of uh, the linguistic complexity of understanding and the concept in a language you don't understand or you don't speak is super important. So what we have, we have a series of leaders, me included, who have been educated to be doing suburban things.
0: Mm-hmm. So we go
1: into an urban setting and we just naturally do what is naturally done in suburban settings. So for me, that urban uh, connection Or the understanding of the complexities of the community that you are serving is very important. And I take it always from me as a leader. I've been in education for 25 years, 26 years. And I am responsible for the decisions that I make every day. I understand the complexity of the needs surrounding our kids. Well, my solutions will be connected to what I know. Not Mm -hmm. necessarily what they need. Mm-hmm. So, important. so my book, and we're going to talk about my book later on, is, is those five perspectives, is the community, is the leadership, is the family, are the teachers, the students, that dynamic of understanding how that actually works is very important for, for us to be able to create conditions that are appropriate for multilingual learners and for everyone.
0: That's great. That's great. Um, we have a lot of different viewers right here, Dr. Paez. We've got teachers, new teachers, We also have principals, superintendents like you and other school leaders watching across the United States and across Asia. So I I want to kind of like put it down to the perspective of like newer teachers in terms Mm -hmm. of what I heard from you. You mentioned about equity versus equitable, right? And can you please uh, uh, break it down to some of our listeners who may not be as familiar when it comes to those concepts?
1: So, yeah, let me focus on new teachers because they are uh, the people that we hire. We recruit them, we hire them, and we need to support them to be successful. And I think in education, the biggest pay we get, or the biggest reward for our work is when kids succeed. Mm-hmm. So, to be thinking about how to surround these new teachers or newly hired staff on what are the conditions that we are giving them to be able to then make the connection with learning and empowerment for kids is very important. And so many people think, oh, I don't have the skills, I don't have the experience, but but that's what we have the training, but we have the the in, inspiring them to do the right thing based on equitable decisions. Specifically for multilingual learners, the, the best allies are, are, are newly hired teachers because they have to develop a repertoire of uh, lesson planning, strategies, everything that they need to do in the classrooms. They need to be supported to be able to have the right ESL materials, the right ESL curriculum, the right after school programs, the right conditions for them to be successful. Now, Mm -hmm. this is not possible alone. Teachers need to be working with a team, hopefully with a team that is bilingual or a team of uh, professionals that are also providing additional support. Mm -hmm. In in the United States, we use a lot and and in some places use it more than others. We use response to intervention, RTI. Response intervention. So tier one, and then you need core plus more is the tier two, and then the specialized component of tier three. So how does system works in in urban education when when any system is the way to go? Because you know that when you have a group of students, call it special education, uh, uh, individualized educational plans, or someone who's learning in a different way, or multilingual learners you have to be able to have the conditions in the core when everybody's teaching the students for the very first time. And then when they are not learning as fast or learning everything, they go to the supplemental component and then you go to the specialized. So having that message to all the educators that they are not doing this alone is very important. And Mm -hmm. we have a system of support that is not just them in the classroom in second grade or fifth grade. And that's it. That's all they have they need to have a team concept they have to have principals that understand that organization structure in the schools to be able to to know that the one thing that is so amazing is that we are very good at delivering information teaching and then we we, we don't react very well when the kids are not learning mm-hmm. i think we need to be more focused on how we react when kids don't learn instead of just being the 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 front of just providing the information I always say the dynamic is teaching then learning mm-hmm. but if teaching and learning and it's like oh I'm, I'm an expert delivering information and they just know learning I think that at that point learning didn't happen mm-hmm. if you were teaching something and the student or the students or the, statistically obviously doing the analysis if the students don't learn I wasn't effective teaching. So as an educator, I also have to work with my team and say, okay, so I'm not getting there. I'm mm-hmm. not getting that everybody's learning. And now when we think about multilingual learners, the amount of gaps mm. that are created over time, because it's not comprehensible input. Mm-hmm. This is connected, and I know you might have a question about models that we use for language development. yeah. This is so important because you have to be able to understand that the language development process takes four to seven years. Mm-hmm. It's not a nine-year thing or a two-year thing. It's a seven, four to seven years. So mm-hmm. you have to be able to have the resources, first of all, the understanding of mm-hmm. how that works, and be able to provide systems to be able to support our, our teachers, our, our schools, and obviously our learners to be able to learn when we are teaching them.
0: Great. Um, you mentioned about the programs, and I'm just curious right now, in, uh, in Rhode Island, right? Um, what are you doing to support our students over there in Central, Central Falls?
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: which among our MLs are the fastest growing in Rhode Island? I'm curious.
1: Yes. Well, it's actually is a very exciting time for multilingual learners in Rhode Island. We have a, an amazing commissioner. That came in, and the first things, one of the first things she did was to create the blueprint blueprint of multilingual success.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Imagine you are in a district or in any state of the country, and that's your job description: to develop a blueprint for multilingual success. It's a five-year plan. We are in the second year, second to third year, of developing something for the blueprint blueprint of multilingual success. Well, with that, it's a, it's a great impetus to make mm-hmm. some changes. Now we're going to how challenging or how difficult that is because we have systems that have been in place that have produced what they produce so to to break the news or to educate an environment that has been rigid and producing the same things over and over again for 15 years for 20 years is difficult Changing systems is the most difficult thing that we need to do in education or we have to do in education, especially when we have a wave of immigrants coming into the country and we need to find the ways to welcome them and and provide the best resources for them to accelerate their learning, acquire language and to be able to access content. So I'm going into the methodology now. So when we have the methodologies that we have in the United States or around the world, bilingual education is the most effective one. So why is bilingual education so effective? And I'm going to switch into Spanish to just illustrate that point. Yes. So siempre tenemos que hablar de una forma que el mensaje sea entendido. So what I just said, in order to understand, you have to comprehend what someone is telling you. And in my article, I said something like, kids don't learn from people they don't understand. mm mm-hmm. Students don't learn from people they don't understand. So it's two things that we can do there. Teachers, even if they speak only English, they could be understood. Mm-hmm. could be. But that part of how differentiated the instruction is, how specific the instruction is to make everything comprehensible, is essential. It mm-hmm. is essential. But when you don't have that comprehensible input to be 100% understood, then you have all the models, which is bilingual education dual language education bilingual programs the beauty of bilingual programs and dual language education is that it's a natural way mm-hmm. of educating someone so comprehensible input is taking place all the time so let's look back at what districts are doing so we have uh, Rhode Island who is doing about 97 percent of the programs in an English only environment 90%. 97%. Ninety-seven 7%. And only 3% on a bilingual environment. Now, in Central Falls, we are fortunate because we opened a school. It's a small district, very small district. We opened a, uh-huh. a bilingual school. It's a beautiful school. And actually, it's a beautiful district because the energy of making things happen is, is, is really great.
0: That's awesome.
1: But creating a dual language school was very important because then we have a pre-K through 6,
0: and uh-huh. it's
1: bilingual 50-50. A great, beautiful environment, and we expand into middle school. And hopefully, the dream is to go to all the way to grade 12. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to the methodology. So, we are making an investment of $10,000, and I know my investment is going to yield results. Mm-hmm. And my investment is going to give me the best return of my investment at the top bilingual levels. I should mm-hmm. be investing more in those models. But we invest in, when you see the graph from Collier and Thomas, and I hope people can research, just do Collier and Thomas, is the most relevant longitudinal study of language development programs. You're using the least effective, which is English only.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So what is the challenge? Districts that choose to do English only, they have to create a tremendous infrastructure of services to ensure that comprehensible input happens.
0: hmm
1: If it doesn't happen, we are creating gaps. We are creating academic gaps because if the student doesn't understand what the teacher is telling you, one day, two days, three months, three years, those gaps are insurmountable when they get to high school, middle school. So it's very important that the leaders, or all of us who make those decisions, understand the complexities of that language development process and then create the structures to be able to make that work. So that's what the importance of this conversation is, because I'm hoping that my colleagues, either superintendents or directors or everyone else, get connected to the experts in the field to be able to say, okay, what is it that I need to do here to make it comprehensible? So hopefully we can make that happen after this conversation. <laughs> yeah,
0: that would be great. Actually, when you started to speak in Spanish earlier, I was like, oh, wow, I put myself in the shoes of a student, like trying to learn from you as a teacher in that very moment, right? And I was mm-hmm. like, goodness, I don't understand or I didn't understand what you had mentioned. And again, as a student trying to figure out, okay, what am I gonna do and things like that, and multiply that with all of our mls with all of our ls across the united states that definitely resonates in terms of the growing opportunity and achievement gap among our students right so um my my thought process went to all right as a school leader how do we then become accountable to the programs that work particularly bilingual programs how do we become more accountable to those solutions that are uh, effective can you tell us more about that accountability and the school leaders particularly you know superintendents uh, people uh, uh, people of power who can make things happen
1: yeah no uh, absolutely a great question and one of the probably the only reason that I wanted to become a superintendent was to be able to make the decisions. Mm -hmm. Because one thing that I have to identify, and I'm glad that in Asia and other places are listening to this, the biggest challenge we have is the knowledge gap.
0: Yes.
1: The knowledge gap. So when you're trying to change, and power is very interesting how it works, when we have power, and and always uh, diminish my Harvard ed background, uh, we don't know everything. You yeah. don't know everything. The fact that you have a good education doesn't mean you know everything. I rely on relied on people that are experts to be able to help me when I don't know any, something. In this case, it's, and I train principals and leaders and teachers, I'd say to everybody, it's okay not to know. Mm-hmm. It's okay not to know. You don't have to do everything yourself. So That's when right. we think about, oh, dual language education is is, is, is not what perhaps we don't we don't do as a country. In the United States, we take pride of being an English-only country, which is such a disadvantage for the geopolitical influence we have in the world when everybody else is learning English at the fastest possible way. And then we just take pride of just, just speak English. So that embedded belief system, and my dissertation was about that embedded belief systems of educators educating multilingual learners or English learners, is is that that internal motivation pushes to do the suburban solution, right? So how can I do what I'm more comfortable doing? Yes. I'm not comfortable doing dual language because it's rare. Three mm-hmm. percent in Rhode Island, maybe maybe eight percent here in Massachusetts at the national level, maybe less Utah, for example, they have a, a whole legislature language to have dual language education. So some states are aggressively moving to make that happen. But going back about the accountability piece, Mm -hmm. is that this is an interesting concept because this group of kids don't have political representation. When you think about this, and I wrote that in my book, the school boards typically are by people from the community who are representing their interests or their neighborhood interests. And they usually don't go and represent the multilingual learner. The Mm -hmm. multilingual learner usually don't have the voting rights or the political muscle to be able to say, yes, we need someone to protect my rights as a newcomer. And the other characteristic about the newcomers or the new immigrants is that we're very thankful. Mm-hmm. I, I'm an immigrant. I was, I'm still super thankful of all the opportunities I have in this country. That's the attitude of newcomers. They're never going to come in and say, hey, I, I, I heard Dr. Pai saying about that equity was what I needed to strive for. Even though I have good schools, I need some direct services for my child. That's not going to be happening. So mm-hmm. when we take that ethical responsibility to interpret what the families need or what the kids need, that has to be based on the law, not based mm-hmm. on asking them what they think because they are brand new. So connecting to the school board component, we have a group of students that, especially in the last six, eight years, totally unrepresented and totally diminished by the political environment as immigrants, it mm-hmm. became. An immigrant, I never felt so offended about being an immigrant in the United States when we are all immigrants. And yes. it's such a targeted group that very few people defend it. I'm always defending immigrants. I'm always defending who I am, mm-hmm. my kids, my community. But it was very contentious. So what is the accountability? The accountability yeah. has to be by school boards, by advocates like me and others that are trying to fight for these kids to give them a voice, to empower them, to be the ones who are saying in your statistic or the, the one that I will review in a second, 60% graduation rate when it's 83% for the rest. The implications of life, lack of quality education is long lasting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You, you, you're depriving yourself of a high income job if you don't graduate from high school or if you don't go to college. So part of my work has been connecting that that we have to be accountable. An ultimate accountable piece, and I would say my example as a superintendent, I asked for my evaluation to be according to the growth we have. And my principals were upset because I said, "Wait, wait a minute, I'm working hard, harder than ever before in this turnaround plan. Mm -hmm. Yes, but at what point are we accountable for the outcome? So I put myself out there Mm -hmm. saying that, and it's probably unpopular, and it's a rhetorical component. But, mm-hmm. but connecting to your question is, if we are not responsible for the mm-hmm. out and it's historic outcomes, who's responsible? That's if right. The people that were hired to transform and change the educational environment of kids, mm-hmm. who, who, who then is accountable? Right. Every day I'm complaining about my lack of progress. We haven't done enough. We haven't done enough on this. We have to keep fighting for these other things. So it is very challenging. I'm not saying with this that it's easy. But you have to look at research. And one thing that I always say, we can be experimenting with kids. We have what the research is telling us for us to be just wondering, you know, maybe we could do this. No, this is a civil rights issue. Kids have the right to get high quality education wherever they are. In, in Florida or in California or in Massachusetts or in Rhode Island, they do have the right to have equal access to meaningful educational opportunities. And it's up to us to make that work.
0: That's right. Um, and I feel like being in the special education field for over 15 years, I think the distinction between MLs and special education is that we are bound by the law. And with the ELs and MLs, there are really very limited laws connected to the education of our students, right? So, from your point of view, how then can schools increase equitable access to MLs?
1: So, going back to the, the perspective of what is right for kids, what is equitable, and right. what is the law, the law we all subject to that law, right? So, to bring the best possible education to kids. Usually what happened, and I was in in Worcester and in in Massachusetts when the DOJ came in and the DOJ, Department of Justice came in and said, okay, you guys are not providing equal access to meaningful educational opportunities. You gotta do something, a corrective action, right? So a corrective action is like you are forced, you are forced to be doing something Mm -hmm. that you didn't wanna do in the first place. That's sure. not the right way to do it. The mm-hmm. right way to do that is to be able to do what is right because ethically that's the right thing to do and because you believe that's the right thing to do and because you're using research to be able to do so. So what districts need to do is use as a reference what the DOJ have done, the Department of Justice have been asking and saying exactly what needs to be done. In Massachusetts, a great example. Mm-hmm. We need to provide direct hour of services for mm-hmm. multilingual learners. And I created, back in Leminster and in Worcester, a continuum of services. Three hours to a full day instruction that is ESL driven, or is essentially ESL. Why ESL? I just mentioned the gaps in vocabulary. That's from right. vocabulary in English to 12,000 words that they need to know to function in an English speaking environment. So when you have those references as the Department of Justice, what leaders should do is like, well, we don't want the DOJ to be here or the Office of Civil Rights because I'm an equitable person. And I and I use that language in in the DOJ because in DOJ said to avoid prosecution. And mm-hmm. I was training principals and I said, guys, imagine that. We are the most altruistic profession
0: and we get <laughs> yeah. a
1: note from the Department of Justice saying to, uh, to avoid prosecution, I must be doing A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's where the whole thing is. If we are the ethical, legal guardians and stewards of this purpose of education, the duty of care, which mm-hmm. is what you is the duty of care. We mm-hmm. don't do it. That's what the accountability is. You have to surround yourself with the special ed directors, with the special ed education leaders, with English language learners, with all these experts in the field, and you just have to listen to them and do what the experts are telling you. This is no guesswork. If you are in an environment in which you have to lobby for the obvious, that's probably not the right place for you. That's you have right. to be able to find the right fit. And I, when I train my students, I said to them, find the right fit. Where is the place that wanna do what you wanna do? What is a pleasure to go in and connect with that person that understand without saying a word that you both believe about equity? If you believe about our equity because you're going to do everything possible to get there without the doj or without the civil rights or the lawsuit from lao versus nichols or castanera or all those things so for me that's that's what leaders should do so as a leader and now in my kind of my late years of educator i love talking about this because i can talk to other countries about what we have done here all the resources that we have in this country how we can do things in, in just a little plug, in in, in July, July 4th and 5th, I'm gonna be presenting in Rome, the quality of education, the future of education in the world with all the advances, advancements that we have. So for me, leadership is everything. We mm-hmm. make decisions every day that either interrupt the status quo or maintain the status quo. To make it simple, the leadership role of all of us is to interrupt that status quo.
0: I love it to interrupt the status quo. And I think we're going to pause at this moment. Dr. Paez learned so much from you this morning. And actually, as I was listening to you, part of me is telling me, okay, Alpha, you've been in the field of public ed for a long time. Maybe it's time to really dig into our immigrant students and really provide what's equitable to them. So I love it. It is our duty to interrupt. So with that, we're going to interrupt this for a few minutes. And then when we come back, I'd love to hear about your book on urban education. All righty? See you in a bit. is a live stream platform of online shows for people on the go. Please watch all of our shows to seen on the screen. Imagine having your own show. All right, and plug it in right there. Um, so continue to watch us here on selected Saturdays at 1030 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or 1030 p.m. Um, Manila or Philippines time. All right, folks, um, let's bring in Dr. Sergio Paez back and let's uh, talk about his book, Finding a New Perspective for Urban Education in America. Tell us all about that, Dr. Uh, Paez.
1: Thank you so much. So the, the reason I decided to publish this book is about and this is that's my picture when I was old. So oh that's, wow! That was pretty cool. My that's daughter, cool. Came up, my daughter came out with that uh, uh, cover, so I'm very proud of that.
0: Nice. So,
1: so this is very important because we are in charge of the future generation of Americans,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: and it sounds sounds good, and and it sounds like makes sense, but at the same time, it's a little painful because we continue producing the same challenges in urban settings. So the, just to give you a quick example about how that works in a zip code component. In Massachusetts, if I have a zip code of Brookline of Newton my or, or Shrewsbury, my, my academic experience will be amazing. Mm. But if it's not, I mean, perhaps Boston or Springfield or Holyoke or Lawrence or Worcester, mm-hmm. the quality of education is not as high. And that's what I said, a new perspective for Urban Education in America. So what I did, I not only I did the case study of Holyoke, which was so rich.
0: We Mm -hmm. did so many
1: great great things with an awesome team of people in Holyoke that would really turn around the district in such a short time. But I learned also a big lesson about politics and I'm not a politician. I don't Mm -hmm. want want to like politics. I don't like any of that stuff. I like (laughs) to do things that are good for kids, for immigrants, for my community. For me, and I'm, I'm so excited about my own life as an immigrant that I'm always super high on on, on happiness about my experience in the United States. Awesome. But finding a new perspective is, is key because I'm asking five things. Well, I'm saying five things. Leadership, which we talk a little bit about that. Then parental support, parents. Then teachers. Then the community. And then students.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so what I'm trying to analyze is what each of those aspects play a role in the makeup of the school and obviously the outcome? What is the outcome of, of all those dynamics? So let's talk about parents for a second. Parents, mm-hmm. and I, I usually said, uh, the best way to to use working with parents is how can I empower them? How can I empower parents to be able to be partners in the education of the children? But oftentimes and the, the, the reality of parents who are new to the country, is that this is so complex. Going into the school alone in in, in a language that I don't understand is intimidating. Mm -hmm. How can I then go and navigate the system when I've never been to that system? So as a parent, I don't know who I need to talk to. I don't know what the principal means or the assistant principal or the guidance counselor or anybody. I just Mm -hmm. know my kid as a teacher and I love the school and I send my kid over to the school and I'm very thankful. But we need to work on empowering them What is the best way to empower a parent? Is to show them the outcome of Mm. our programs. If I look at dropout rates or Mm -hmm. graduation rates or academic achievement in third grade, who determines my success moving forward, is like the, the same concept we have in America, which is learn to read to third grade and then read to learn for the rest of your life. In this case, how can we do that with our parents who are disenfranchised, who don't understand the complexity of our systems, that they don't speak the language. So our ethical responsibility is to understand what is it that they need to be fighting for and then be allies with them to fight for those resources. Because they are not going to come in and say, I want after school programs for my kid. Mm -hmm. I want the AP elective to be given to my child who's in second year in the United States. They they are not going to do do so, but we have the responsibility to empower our parents to understand what is the duty of the school system, the responsibility of the school district, and how they can help us. The more they tell us what is it that they need, how they can collaborate and partner with their teachers, that's very important. Then we have teachers, which teachers are... For me, the teachers are the, 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 the lifeline of our schools.
0: They are. They, and,
1: it's super, and as a second grade teacher, elementary teacher, is super intense, right? So you have the kids in front of you, uh, 20, 25 kids that you have in front of you for six, six and a half hours. Your job is to inspire them, transform their lives. And it's up to us to provide the resources for them to do so. What is it that I'm giving the teachers in regards to support, to criteria to have programs and services, all that component. Unfortunately, what has happened in, in the country and is the rhetorical political part of the country is that teachers are bad. That teachers, mm-hmm. got it. so everybody has an opinion about a teacher. When I mm-hmm. said, that when everybody or someone is, is talking about teachers, I say, okay, come with me for a day.
0: Mm-hmm. Just be
1: a teacher for a couple of hours. Come and solve in front mm-hmm. of a classroom that you have to teach math or science or whatever. Content you need to teach. So, teachers are super important because we need to make sure that we hear what they're saying if they are not successful. But if we don't create the conditions for them to be successful, it's on me as a leader. Yeah. Class size, for example, class size, or lack of materials, or lack of appropriate materials. I am responsible for that, right? So, I Mm -hmm. have to create the conditions for these teachers to be there. And also, when it's a language barrier, do I have Mm a Do I have additional uh, tutors or ESL professionals helping the teacher? How can we make that content comprehensible specifically for multilingual learners? So very important. Then community. The community is vital because we are producing the future citizens, the future workforce. The community is vital for the the community to invest in the public schools or in the schools in general, is to be able to say the Chamber of Commerce. Or the the, the 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 factories around the area, or, or just the the community, the, the community around the city, or the, the school district, is what is it that you are doing to prepare the best possible employee, employees, mm-hmm. the professionals, the store owner, the the lawyers, the doctors, the teachers from the community. So that community involvement, and we have a system of a school boards, school mm-hmm. committees, board of trustees. Those politicians have or representatives better of, of the community are the ones who are the stewards of that. So community is very important. But how we make the community responsible about multilingual learners when that's not the top priority for them. That's true. And, and we talk about a special education, if it's le- students with learning disabilities or English language learners or disenfranchised, disenfranchised communities. I, It's very rare that we have a school board unified to say, the budget needs to be built around the needs of our kids that are in the most greater need. What I just said is what equity is. If you know you have kids who are not doing well and Mm -hmm. they need to accelerate their learning and we need to give them more, well, that's what you do equitably if you are in a position of power to be able to say that. But that doesn't happen. When you think about the resources given to multilingual learners in Rhode Island and Massachusetts, we've been fighting for years about Title III, which is the federal money coming from the States. It's just not enough.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: It's not enough for after school programs, how you catch up, how you provide additional staffing to accelerate the learning, that that gap that we create, we need to diminish that gap. And also we haven't talked about students with interrupted formal education.
0: It's true. In,
1: in, in Worcester, we open a school mm-hmm. for immigrant students, for mm-hmm. refugees from Africa. Mm-hmm. The gaps that these kids had or still have is, is, is huge. How mm-hmm. do you develop programs and services to diminish those gaps? To have Saturday academies, to have after-school programs. In the six hours, a typical child don't learn enough.
0: Mm-hmm. How
1: a multilingual learner will do it, or how a refugee student would do it, or someone mm-hmm. with learning disabilities would do it. Mm-hmm. That is a support system that the community then entitled funding for it. Funding is key, right? So yes. you funding. it has to be correlated to the challenges. And then the last part is the student. Yeah. The emotional needs of kids, the specific needs of kids has to be number one priority. Why I said that as a student, I empower myself or I use everything I could to empower myself to be that engine wanting to learn. Mm -hmm. But leave it up to the kids. We have to inspire them to get there. So the dynamic, the book is about how you combine those elements of leadership, parental involvement, teachers, community, and students to be able to have a fresh perspective about what urban education is. Thinking, as I said earlier, to interrupt the status quo. So it's a a combination of things. And then the book, just uh, to close that aspect of it, I, I use the case study of Holyoke. So every we move and change every aspect of it because the solutions need to come within the mm-hmm. distance. It cannot be from consultants and they all they all have the cure of cancer. They all have it. They're all gonna promise you everything, but only if you give them the keys of the kingdom. You don't have you can't afford that. You have to manage your system as a superintendent and say, I'm pres- I prescribe. I'm the one who's gonna be using the resources that I've been given by the community. And I am gonna be using every penny to make sure that I correlate to the needs of kids, which is the equitable part of it. But if we distribute the budget the same way for everybody, that's equality, it's not equity. That's true. Equity is what everyone needs. So everything is tied up into that dynamic. And my book, I, I'm, for, for, I mean, second book that I write, uh, but it's, it's an, an, an exciting um, a process. Uh, writing is great. I mean, spending more time on writing uh, these days. I, I, I think you mentioned at some point action research is very important to write what happens in your life. I, I think teachers should be doing action research all the time and publishing. Mm-hmm. The voice of educators is not represented well in, in the media and in publishing mm-hmm. yes. books. So it's a lot of work to do there, and I'm spending a lot of time. I like writing, so I've been publishing a lot, of one or two documents per year or per semester in different interest areas. But but no, the book is hopefully some something that people can can enjoy.
0: That's awesome. Um, I thought I saw that you have like a Harvard um, article that was published in the Harvard Journal. Um, tell us about it, and uh, let's see if we can actually plug it in, in in one of our comments section right here so people can have an access in terms of that link. Well, Thank, that you.
1: About. Thank yeah. you. So the Harvard, the Harvard article, it was right after I finished my tenure in Worcester. Okay. And it was an amazing uh, journey because it's very rigorous to publish in the Harvard Review. But what I was able to do is because we created such a great models of language mm-hmm. development. For example, the newcomers Environment, in in Worcester was called ESL labs, laboratories. The ESL lab, I created it in Leminster when we have the question two about English only and all that stuff. And then we created and we use Hampton Brown materials and everything was multi-sensory. They have to okay. hear the word, they have to see the, the, the content, they have to be able to interact because it's so much to catch up. So mm-hmm. that article is talking about that model of the ESL labs and and one thing that the law says that is very is ignored across the field is that parents should have choice of program mm, but when okay. you have only one is no yeah. choice mm. you just go to the one that is available that's but true the, the Law says yeah. you have to have choice so transitional bilingual education dual language education uh, early immersion programs esl programs whatever but if you are offering only one
0: Mm -hmm.
1: we have a problem. We have districts have to be, especially large districts. We have a very small district. It's very challenging. But if you have a large district like Providence or Worcester or Boston and you see the intake forms, they have like four to five options. That's required by the law. Parents should have an option to say, I'm going to the self-contained English-only environment or I'm Mm -hmm. going to the transitional bilingual program or I'm going to uh, whatever the programs are. So so I think that that part of writing that article was great because the data in Worcester was very noticeable. We went from eighteen percent proficiency to thirty eight percent in the That's 60s. amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. And I had the best team ever. Wow. My, my um my my team in 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 Worcester was amazing. We have. Trainers, we have uh, agreements for masters programs. We have a million things that we were doing because not only we had the DOJ that mm-hmm. I needed to answer, but we also have the the specific needs of 76 languages represented in the district. Mm-hmm. So it was an amazing experience, and and really uh, I enjoyed it a lot. So that's the Harvard Education letter. Um, so it's great that I look a little younger, which is fine. <laughs> <laughs> went by but but no thank you for publishing that i'm very proud of that and also as an immigrant is great everything that i have done uh, my family and my community and my country i'm from colombia originally so Mm -hmm. i'm very proud of my roots and hopefully i can i can the way i see my job or my my input in education is like planting seeds right Mm -hmm. sometimes the seeds go into a fertile area that is going to come out to the big tree or sometimes going to the area that is not going to grow to the that's street. That's true, right? yes. You keep, you keep putting seeds in there. I said, okay, so that's, that's what research is good because you can then publish to every other people. I talked to a brain, you know, about a month and a half ago, I'm going to Rome and talk to Spain, to Colombia. You, you, you share these views. And yeah. then people are saying, okay, yeah, maybe that, that could work here. Let me Dr. Said, "We look at research. I mean, I'm, I don't have the answers. The field has the answers. So people need to just be curious intellectually. This is not a, a mystery. We're treating immigrants as if they were new.
0: Mm-hmm. We have,
1: this is the fiber of our country. We mm-hmm. have forever, and we still don't have a very clear program of services for multilingual learners. It's always like it's a discovery. Oh, my God, this is happening. What do you mean this is happening? This is happening for the history of this country. We should have some services ready and plan and look forward into what you need to do to absorb and be successful educating them.
0: Mm -hmm. That's true. Well, actually, um, my last question could be about this shift. You know, sometimes when we we use the term ELs, there is this tone of deficit around it, right? Right. So what do you think, uh, Dr. Paz? How can we shift the deficit label of MLs and make it an asset to our schools?
1: Absolutely. I, and I think uh, as, as an immigrant myself and with an accent and, and being my native language is Spanish, it's always interesting to, to see who you're interacting with. Mm-hmm. And, and when I go to Europe and I talk to people, accents are not a problem. Yeah, here, accents are a problem. People yes. start assuming less. Yes. When in fact, it's the opposite. When you mm-hmm. have an accent, that means you know two languages or perhaps more. Mm-hmm. So having that lack of, uh, we got to educate people about that. And that's what I'm saying, what I'm saying here. But it, also the multilingual learner or the, originally was LEP, limited English proficient, all those labels, mm-hmm. almost a distraction to yeah. say, oh, we are in the cutting age of just giving them the name. Not to change the programs and services. I think the focus should be on what are my programs and services. Let my actions talk, and my actions be my core values. I and as the article that you read, I said, don't, stop saying equitable. Mm-hmm. Equity, empowerment, no, just do it. Let's let's do it. So I'm inviting everyone. And I, when I talk to my team and talk to everybody, it's like, no, let's sh- let's let's do something that is going to show that we care.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, it's
1: multilingual learners. Well, sure, it's more than one language. We should strive to have a country that is multilingual. So hopefully with that connotation brings an impetus to make that work and to transform districts for multilingual learners. Uh, but it's an exciting field for sure. And that's what I'm comfortable doing what I'm doing because it's such a second nature for me. It's so comfortable for me to be working on something that I've been doing my whole life. So it's a great opportunity. And, and, you know, thank you so much for the opportunity. I think this is great that we have an opportunity to talk about these very, very important issues.
0: It is. And thank you for gracing the premiere episode of season two, Dr. Paez. It's really has been an amazing hour with you. I can continue to ask questions, listen more about you. Um, Maybe who knows in the near future, we can have you back here. And we can continue to talk about the programs uh, for our MLs. And at the end of the day, for our viewers, I hope that you were able to really learn from Dr. Sergio Paez. And I want you and I encourage you to please follow him. All right. If you have any questions, please, you can email him and his email will be uh, flash right here. Let's see. His email is ser 149 at AOL.com and you can check out his website at sergiopaes.weebly.com And obviously, we talked about Dr. Paez's book earlier uh, and another upcoming book. So I cannot wait to actually dig into the second book and the first book and really figure out how we can continue to provide equitable access to our students. Again, Dr. Pius, thank you. I'm going to leave our uh, episode one for season two with this thought. Multilingual learners equals multi-talented learners. And they deserve the best and equitable access. And us as leaders, according to Dr. Pius's words, it is our obligation to interrupt. All right, Dr. Pius, thank you so much. I appreciate your time and I'll see you soon.
1: Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank
0: you. Bye, everybody. I'll see you in next two weeks, May 21st. And we will be talking about access to technology and entrepreneurial education. Good night. Good morning and enjoy the rest of your weekend. And if you are a mother, or if you are in the role of a mother or caregiver, tomorrow is your day. I hope you enjoy your wonderful Mothers and Caregivers Day. Good morning, everybody. See you in the next two weeks. Bye again, Dr. Pius.
1: Thank you, bye-bye.
0: Thanks.